Behold the beast who bears the pointed tail, who crosses mountains, shatters weapons, walls. Behold the one whose stench fills all the world. And he came on that filthy effigy of fraud and landed with his head and torso, but did not draw his tail onto the bank. The face he wore was that of a just man, so gracious was his features outer semblance, and all his trunk the body of a serpent. He had two paws with hair up to the armpits. His back and chest, as well as both his flanks, had been adorned with twining knots and circlets. No Turks or Tartars ever fashioned fabrics more colorful in background and relief, nor had Arachne ever loomed such webs. As boats will sometimes lie along the shore with part of them on the land and part in water, and just as there, among the guzzling Germans, the beaver sets himself when he means war, so did that squalid beast lie on the margin of stone that serves as border for the sand. That sounds like Dante. That is Dante, and that's uh, Dante describing part of his journey um, guided and protected by the poet Virgil into the deepest pit of hell. So they have to get down to the bottom of the lowest bulge, and they have to do this by hitching a ride on the back of this creature whose name is Jirion. And Jirion is essentially a manticore, which is a composition of human, lion, and serpent characteristics, and also with a little scorpion thrown in there. Yeah, that's, that's Dante tapping into the manticore, who's our subject for today. So this is Real Fantastic Beasts, and I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes, because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us to understand our place among our fellow creatures today. Although the manticore is pretty fantastical, I have to say. Well, that is true. And so I kind of wanted to think about that. Um, you know, why are we including this in the real Fantastic Beasts? And I want to make the argument that there is something real about them. And I want to start from kind of a medieval perspective. So medieval Europeans had a great deal of respect for authority. Right? So if something had been written down a long time ago and passed down by reliable authors, authorities, they, yes. would, um, they would give it credit. And this description that Dante is sort of playing with in a very literary sense actually finds its origin really, really long before this time, possibly as early as the 5th century B.C., there's an account by a, a writer named Aelian, who's a Roman writer of the third century AD. And he relates that there's in India this wild beast, and he goes on at quite some length about this creature that he calls the Martichoras. He says that its face is that of a man. It has three rows of teeth set in its upper jaw and three in the lower, very sharp, like the fangs of a hound. Its ears also resemble a man's, except that they are larger and shaggy. He's specific about the color <laughs> of its eyes. So it's almost like a natural history type description of this animal, which includes things like the scorpion tail and the lion claws and all of that. But what's really interesting to me about this is that after this very long description that details all the physical characteristics of this, he says, 
we have this on good authority. We have this from Tesius. So Tesius is a writer of the 5th century BC who claimed right. to have actually seen one of these and who <laughs> provides Alien with this very um, specific description. So I think for a medieval reader, often that would be a pretty good argument. And, you know, when we talked about leopards, what medieval person had ever seen a leopard and yet they believed in them too? You know, exactly. <laughs> they were just as real as leopards, I guess. I mean, it's all, it's eyewitness testimony, right? If it from an authority, you're going to, like, yeah. you're going to, you're going to believe it. Right. And so I'm going to say that manticores were real to medieval people in the same way that like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, which was in the New York Times this morning, or the Chupacabra are to some people today. Like there's enough eyewitness testimony out there that if you're inclined to accept this thing as real, it it's real. And there's a whole field of, I guess I'll call it parascience. Or I don't want to call it pseudoscience because that's kind of uh, insulting, but this sort of parascientific field called cryptozoology. Right. And I kind of feel like in the Middle Ages, there was no distinction between cryptozoology and zoology. They were, they were all this sort of genre of literature called about the animals. Because everything's hidden. I mean, so many things are you know, like crypto, right? Hidden. Yeah. That, you know, there, it, there's, it's not as though like, well, most everything is known. So like, there's this weird field of cryptozoology. It's just, it's just the part of the, of creation that you, you know about via the authorities because you've never seen one yourself and are unlikely to do so. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, just to give an example, one of the great sort of intellectuals of the 13th century, Albertus Magnus or Albert the Great was a Dominican theologian. But he was very, very interested in the works of Aristotle, including Aristotle's natural history. And he did a lot of reading in the sort of classical literature of, I guess we could call it cryptozoology. He read widely and critically. So when he would process this classical information, he wasn't, he wasn't completely credulous. He said sometimes the Greeks get it wrong. Sometimes the Greeks are... are too trusting of these wild fables that clearly aren't true. So some of the animals that he encounters in uh, Aristotle, he says, that's not real. There's no way. That's just unbelievable. But he does say about the manticore, um, and so this is sort of fortunate for the manticore, that he's actually personally spoken to some hunters right there in Germany where he lives who have seen one in the woods. They were unable to catch it because it's so ferocious, but they assured him that they had seen this thing in the woods. They weren't pulling his leg. He trusted them. So that idea of an eyewitness is really, really compelling. Sure. Same with ghosts, right? If someone tells you a ghost story that they saw themselves and you know them and they saw this thing, like, kind of makes you more likely to believe in ghosts. Exactly. And I mean, I want to say there's something about the manticore that seems real from the sort of geographical knowledge of the Middle Ages, that is to say, the European notion of, of sort of what was out there. You know, most people never traveled very far from wherever they were born, raised, and worked. And so there was a lot of sort of fog around the edges of things, right? Like the margins were very poorly known. Like you say, a lot of things were hidden. I think when you looked at a medieval map, out around the edges, things got really 
monstrous and weird. That was the proof that you were getting to the edge was that, you know, there were people with faces in their chest or one leg who hopped around or manticores. So often like when you see a representation in medieval art of a manticore, it's on a map and it's right out at the edges of the map. So that idea of like, once you go far enough east or far enough south or far enough north, you're going to run into these zany things. Well, and and so, so often it's east, right? I mean, in other words, like it's the okay. Persia or India, right? Where where actually some of these these legendary creatures enter into the uh, the like the discourse. I mean, they literally do come from like East Persian or Indian traditions. Oh yeah. But they're still it's that beginning of the orientalizing of thinking like, well, if it's a you know if it's oh, a, sure. if it's a strange and wondrous beast or custom, it's probably from the east. Exactly, and I mean it's true that the manticore, the actual word, comes from Persian, so it is a creature yep. Yep. in. Persian mythology. And you see it in, for example, early Iranian art will have representations of these sort of guardian figures who have the face of a man and the body of a lion and sometimes a kind of serpentine tail. And the name means man-eater. Um, and, and this is reported right. in Theseus and all these other sources. Sometimes it gets sort of falsely etymologized, is that a word? It's given a false etymology yeah, in reverse, right. or a folk etymology of man-tiger, like a combination of man and tiger, but it's not actually a tiger. It's a lion and a scorpion and a snake that the man's face is on. Yeah, but it shares with, you know, we, when we talked about the tiger, we talked about how, you know, the tiger is sort of famous for being extremely hostile to yeah. people. So you think the manticore, which is the quintessential man-eater, it's like, yeah, of course it's a man tiger, or right, like it's related right, to it. Exactly. Tiger. It's it's a nice functional etymology. I just want to say one more thing about this before I ask you about what happens to the manticore after Dante uses it for this sort of allegorical purpose. I mean, not only does it help him get down to the pit of hell, but you know, just go back to that passage from Canto seventeen of the Inferno, he says, It's a filthy effigy of fraud. So it it's in the part of hell reserved for people who commit fraud, false seeming. And so it makes right. sense. It has this beautiful face and then this monstrous body, right? So he's using it in a very, I mean, and Dante was very skeptical. I'm sure Dante did not actually believe there were manticores to be encountered in this world, but it, it's appropriately a beast of hell for him. And to be fair, he doesn't, he doesn't call it a manticore. The description makes pretty clear what he's imagining and probably based on visual representations yeah. of manticores in depictions of hell that he's seen for example in the baptistry in florence but um i just want to sort of going to this idea that like there's this sort of proto-orientalism about this this idea of um a kind of threatening and and deadly exotic east you know, this is not medieval at all, but, but it does tie back to the Loch Ness Monster because David Hume, who was Scottish, right, <laughs> um, had this observation that he made that human beings have the power to dominate most of the animal world, right? Like through our homo sapien brains. Yeah. And we subjugate, we tame, or we eradicate animal species that are threatening to us, right? Um, the great extinction. But he says... Yeah. As soon as we've done that, we immediately come up with other imaginary creatures. He called them demons of fancy. 
And I'm, of course, imagining that he came up with that thought while he was walking along the shores of Loch Ness. But, you know, this idea that, like, if there's something horrible, like a tiger, but you, but you have a theory on how to capture it, you can kind of defeat the tiger by, by taking away the, the baby tigers and doing the whole thing with dropping the mirror, etc. But a manticore, there's no, there's no dealing with a manticore. You're never going to capture manticore babies. Like, they're just going to eat you alive. So... <laughs> well, not until the Renaissance. Okay, so tell me how the Renaissance caught and captured and tamed the manticore, Ian. Well, okay, so this is an, this is actually another kind of like legendary uh, like a, account of uh, capturing the the baby manticore. Apparently, and this is from Topsell, he says when when the Indians take a whelp of this beast, they bruise the buttocks and the tail so it can never be fit to bring its sharp quills back, and afterwards it's tamed without peril. So like suddenly the scary manticore is turned into just like a local animal where like you just dock its like scorpion tail and then when it's a baby and then it's like a house pet no no problem right uh i don't i don't know about those the multiple rows of teeth right or the sharp claws or any of the rest of it but there's that you're right it's like that persistent idea like you create the demons of fancy and then you tame the demons of fancy right right somehow like you already you're already thinking about that but yet you've always got to create the scary um animal as well the other thing, like that distinction between the the fabulous and monstrous and the real, it starts to, it starts to have some play. So the manticore in the Middle Ages enters into the heraldic tradition, right? So you yeah. could have a manticore on your shield, right? Like it could be an emblem of your family. It's like a, one of the standard things you can have. But then the later accounts uh, begin to sort of distinguish between the animals you might have on your shield, and you know they they make the argument that well. A real animal is always better to have on your shield than a monstrous animal, which immediately says there are these monstrous animals, mm -hmm. one of which is the manticore. And the monstrous animals, if you have one of them on your shield, there's something in your family history that is shameful or problematic. Uh, so the manticore is apparently evidence that you have, that, you know, you may be brave and courteous, but you're also like maybe there's some tyranny in your background, like you're huh. liable to be tyrannical because you've got a manticore on your shield. But that's clearly taking this earlier tradition in which they were just animals and they were on your shield and manticores were just animals that you could have on your shield and starting to distinguish between the ones that they think like this is a real animal or mm. this is a fabulous animal um, or a monstrous animal because monstrosity right. is the thing that they're suddenly saying, they're suddenly attributing to certain kinds of animals like the manticore that are, that look like they're made up of parts of other animals, I think. So there's a little bit of a distinguishing there. But then they do the whole natural history thing, basically double down on the natural history. So Topsell and the, those who repeat that information take the traditional description of the manticore, which comes goes way back to the sources you mentioned, including yeah. the color of everything, and inset it into like a different context. So it is then becomes... A hyena. It's just one of four kinds of hyena. You know, like, well, there's this kind of hyena, and there's this kind of hyena. Oh, yeah. oh and there's the manticore, right? Like, boom. But, but the manticore is like, it's the same old manticore. It's just set within this context of like, now it's a, now there's a taxonomy. We know that it's just a species of hyena. No problem. We can fit it in. Everything's fine. But right. it exists. Well, right? and I mentioned that it's the still, Loch Ness Monster was, on, uh, was in the New York Times this morning. And this is exactly how it happened. There's this kind of dinosaur, swimming dinosaur called a 
pleosaur. Right, yeah, the pleosaur, exactly. right? And uh, recently, um, you know, paleontologists have discovered that pleosaurs did live in fresh water. And so the, the Nessie folks are like, great, that just proves that Nessie is Yay. plausible. And, and right, plausible. Has a place in the taxonomy. Yeah, I mean, really, never really mind exists. that dinosaurs went extinct tens of millions of years ago, and the Loch Ness has only existed for, you know, like since the end of the last ice age, 10,000 years or something. <laughs> and never mind that the manticore has like rows of teeth and like strange darts in its tail, some of which sometimes they can shoot them out and like, like whatever. Never mind all that as long as we yeah, taxonomize exactly. it. It's like somehow real. Uh, oh, and then there's a split. There's also the, the man-tiger uh, becomes uh, a kind of baboon, which in descriptions is a lot like the, the animal we would call a mandrill, which, by the way, comes from the same combination, right? You take drill, which is a, which is a baboon, and then you take man, and you put them together, and you oh, get the I mandrill, which is the, the baboon that looks more <laughs> like a human or something. But anyway, the, so the man-tiger or mantigar is... Now, also, like, oh, yes, but there's a kind of baboon that's the mantagar, and you could see how that works. They've got humanish yeah. faces, that simian Absolutely. similarity kind of thing. Baboons look a little bit like, you know, lion bodies, right? They've got, you know, lots of fur, and their, their claws yeah. are very lionish, and, and they're they have also a tail. The, I think, you know, there are probably a couple different things going on here, but as you move into the early modern period, Europeans are suddenly going places they've never been before and encountering, you know, new species. So the flip side of the natural history stuff, which is kind of this combination of the older traditions being with like set into this new, you know, taxonomy or the sense that like, well, there are strange animals out there and we're discovering them, uh, is that the manticore kind of goes full on allegorical. And the Dante passage you mentioned is really like one of those key moments, I think, um, for that. Uh, because that figure, it, it becomes like the manticore, or like the equivalent of manticore, although it is at, you know, like never then, ref- no, like nobody refers to the manticore specifically right. as the beast of fraud, right? right? But it, it like all the allegories of like fraudulence seem to involve manticore kind of attributes or characteristics. Yeah. It's it's just, alle- it's allegorized as fraud a lot. And like, so there there's Dante, in that allegory, there's something interesting that's happening, which is that the manticores mm-hmm. get gets feminized because it starts out as being sort of mm-hmm. always referred to as masculine. Uh, although, you know, presumably if it's got a beast with the natural history, there's like, you know, there's mm-hmm. boy and girl manticores, right? But uh, most of the descriptions are very, you know, like it's, it's got a man's face or the mm-hmm. face of a just man, right, for, for Dante. And I think modern pop culture manticores are always pretty masculine looking and often like basically like lions with like a maybe a wing or two stuck mm-hmm. on and sort of a humanish mm-hmm. face and like you know you can add something to the end of the tale uh <laughs> there's that that idea of fraud and deception gets feminized so there's a great there's a great picture by bronzino mm-hmm. you must know this one right this is the allegory of, yep. the, of venus cupid and uh and folly and and you know all sorts of other allegorical figures are in there and venus is it's uh, sort of squashed up in the foreground with Cupid, a, a rather el- you know, old Cupid, say like almost yeah. middle schoolish yeah. Cupid kissing her, all totally naked. And in the background 
is well, I mean, it's clearly a manticore, right? It's got it's an animal with lion feet, and it's got the scorpion tail, uh, and uh, it's got a human head, but it's the yeah. head of this young girl who looks completely placid. Right. And uh, so the painting has been the subject of a lot of controversy. But like early on, like Vasari looks at the painting and says, it's fraud, right? That, right. Like, that's the figure of fraud because it looks great. You know, looks seems really attractive. Like, isn't she cute? Right. But in, in her other hand, she's got the end of her tail with a scorpion right. sting in it. Yeah. And then, uh, like famously in, in English, there's uh, Spencer's Fairy Queen, where in book one, there's the allegory of error, which is the woman's face and then the scaly tail with a sting at the end. So no lion's feet, right? I guess if that's important to you, then it's not a manticore. But that idea is there. And there's a whole bunch of kind of hybrid fantastic creatures that we're going to probably end up talking about, like the mm -hmm. uh, the Sphinx, right, which has a human face, or the mm -hmm. Lamia, which has a human face and a scaly end. The manticore starts getting kind of just folded into this loose yeah. world of hybridity. And you can kind of blame the discovery. This is, a, this is one of those famous rediscoveries of the, of the right. Roman world. There was a, a palace called the Domus Aurea in Rome, and it was covered over, and then in the late 15th century, we're not, I'm not sure exactly when, like 1480 or so, somebody, somebody like falls into it. Like, <laughs> Through the floor. Uh, and rediscovers all these frescoes and looks around and says like, wow, there's these frescoes, and the frescoes in the Domus Aria are all kind of wild, fantastical combinations of, of human animal forms. And it was like super exciting for the art world, and artists were like going down into these uh, what they what they were calling caves, right? They were really just the archaeological remains of the Domus Aria. And from the caves or the grotto, right, in Italian, you get grotesque, which is this whole, like, artistic movement, which is based on the monstrosity, hybridity, like, features there. So it's, like, super popular artistic thing to do. Yeah. It can, you know, sometimes it's glossed as, like, the power of it's like artistic license, right? It's like you show the the like the yeah. power of the imagination by the various forms that you make. But it's also they're also you know hybridity is always negative in the early uh -huh. modern period. It's it's never in like it may be fascinating, it may be you know something that you want to like put in there, but it's always fraud or error or yeah. some kind of problem when you've got a human head on a on a right. non-human I mean, body. There's that already in that Dante passage I read, and along with the sort of proto-Orientalism, there is this kind of sort of yearning or almost fascination with the beauty of monstrosity. And, and I think really the sort of negativity of monstrosity or hybridity comes from the way it's both attractive and disgusting. You know, and it's sort of like the the, the fundamental characteristic yes. of desire is that the thing that you want is also the thing that terrifies you or, or horrifies you in some way. Um, <laughs> and I, I say this because I think about how he compares, he has that whole flight of fancy about the, the patterned sides of this creature that are clearly textile, right? Like they're not, it's not an animal, it's a made thing. Um, he says, no Turks or Tartars ever fashioned fabrics more colorful in background and relief, nor had Arachne ever loomed such webs. Okay, Arachne also is a woman who's a spider, right? Like, who's turned into a spider. So there's this, like, yes. <laughs> just 
instability, yes, femininity, and also this um, this sense of something made, but also not really human. And the most exotic yeah, and exactly. interesting the, fabrics also happen to the come fabrics from this region. Upon which, in fact, in this period of time, you know, Florence and the other Tuscan cities were attempting to you know, build their fortunes, not only the import of these fabrics, but the sort of reproduction in the, in the workshops of reproduction Florence of them, and Siena yeah. and Luca. There's a whole way in which I think monsters are kind of a, a pathway into thinking about the edges of our understanding and the, the sort of limitations of our current knowledge. Which, which is why there's an explosion of that those kind of images or that kind of thinking in the in the renaissance because of the you know the kind of the global expansion right yeah. and that increasing sense of both desire for but also horror of yeah. the, of the others you know like that hybridity becomes a kind yeah. of feature of the of the world and maybe also why you know the so arachne's a spider as well as a person but she's a person mm -hmm. turned into a spider right so Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is where Ovid, the, the Roman Ovid, kind of like laid out all these mm -hmm. stories of transformation, becomes like the single most popular source for so much art and literature. That idea of like the human changing yeah. into something else, often animal, yeah. uh, or vice versa, right? Like the, yeah. the fluid exchange back and, and forth. And that sense that we're not quite so certain who we are as humans anymore, if it's possible to be both yes. human and lion and serpent and scorpion all at once. I mean, those aren't even all vertebrates. Hey, you're channeling Linnaeus here, right? Come on, <laughs> that's later. It's just animal, animal form. I will say that the multiple rows of teeth are one thing that sticks around in a lot of the uh, sort of straight up manticore accounts in the, in the Renaissance, not in, in the art. So that the young woman face who is the manticore fraud in Bronzino doesn't have multiple rows of teeth but that like all, rows of teeth kind of like is, is clearly a big part of the manticore image in the natural history but what you get is this idea that the manticore's multiple rows of teeth are used as a way of explaining why humans sometimes have multiple rows of teeth apparently Louis the 13th of France had like two rows of teeth and it was a gave him a serious speech impediment and people remarked upon it but that is should we say like normalized by reference to the manticore which has so multiple you're saying that louis the 13th of france was a manticore <laughs> exactly or no more strange right N not strange at all when you consider the manticore who has three rows of teeth. it's like the fantastic becomes a way of explaining the yeah. you know like the variations in in sort of like normal variation is explained by by way of monstrosity and, yeah. and, the, and the fantastic well what's next for us oh and we didn't you know we didn't talk about uh the oh, other yeah. the other man, the man tiger, tiger right is the is a is a were tiger right a man a person who is actually oh, yeah. also turns into a tiger so we don't need to go there now but i'm thinking that we should do the the whole were the were phenomenon but before we go, we have a listener question about tigers. Oh, we do. Yes. So uh, one of our listeners has asked us to talk about the blue tiger because we, just, we spent a lot of time talking about why tigers might have had spots in the Middle Ages. 
but we mentioned that they're blue as well, and that we never really explained the blueness. So, yeah. Alexa, do you have an answer as to why they would decide, why the artist is saying, and I'll make it blue? Okay, well, not really, but I, I have a speculation. Tigers are from the east, right? They're exotic animals from Persia or farther east, perhaps. Another thing that's exotic and also very expensive that comes from the east is lapis lazuli, the uh -huh. pigment, um, the least fug fugitive pigment for making blue in a manuscript illumination, and also the most expensive pigment available to artists in the Middle Ages. So when you were going to make something kind of exotic and beautiful and rich looking in a manuscript, you painted it blue. So for example, the Virgin's blue robe is blue because blue is the most honorable color, the, the, the most prestigious color. So maybe, and this is, I'm really going out on a limb here, maybe tigers are blue because they come from the same part of the world and they're rare and valuable animals. Right, so you look for a rare, valuable, exotic pigment, also your favorite, you know, to, to do this with, which you have elsewhere used for rare and exotic things to do that. Right. And I am going to say that other animals are blue, too, that that are not. I mean, there aren't really that many blue animals, right? But but these bestiary illuminators love to make blue animals and green animals and, you know, animals right. in all kinds of So there's some of the, like... You know, and it's my favorite color, so I will use this. Yes. Uh, since yeah. my account doesn't say what color it is, I'll, I'll do that. I was wondering about this question, and I have a slightly different answer, also a little bit far-fetched. I mean, a lot of these sources are Latin, right? They're, they're using Latin, and the illustrators then, if they're working from a source at all, are presumably working from the Latin source. And the blue word in Latin is cerulean, where you still, I mean, we still have a modern English version of that, right. cerulean blue. But in Latin, the word cerulean could also mean a really dark blue, like blue-black. Mm -hmm. um, or, and or sometimes cerulean would just be a, a word for, for dark, right? Like mm. cerulean shadows or something like that. So mm. it's possible if there was a source that was referring to the markings and said simply said that they're dark markings and use the word cerulean that the illustrator said oh well that's blue <laughs> i'm gonna use blue for that that However, seems high i mean that does seem plausible and and you know in color words this is this is a really fraught area of art history actually is the history of color words because we don't always know that they were using them the way in the we same way think that they mean now so you know, there are all of these color words that we come across, even even in, you know, early early modern English sources or, or middle French sources, where we can't be 100% certain that the color that they're thinking of when they use that word is the color we're thinking of. Sometimes we don't even know if it's a color or more of a texture or a pattern that they're talking about. So color is actually a pretty... Um, historically conditioned category of interpreting what we see. I mean, it falls into the realm of visuality rather than just, you know, biological vision. Yes. And blue is one of the more contested colors. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly historically, a lot, mm -hmm. a lot has been written on the history of blue and 
whether ancient peoples even saw blue. Uh, so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting color on its own. Um, but again, you know, like we could both be wrong. It could be, I mean, it, it could just be come down to like the choice of an illustrator with with no specific information to go on. But these are the kinds of questions that I think attending to fantastic beasts help us to ask and, and really to dig down into these kind of questions of historical knowledge and the ways in which people construct what is real, plausible, fantastical, or otherwise. Yes. And how just how people see the world around them. You know, what what are they what are they seeing when they see an animal? So I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you all for listening and we Hope to hear from you soon. If you have questions, please uh, go to our website and, and email us. It's realfantasticbeasts.com. Our website is also the place you can go to find show notes, transcripts, images, and a link to Patreon if you would like to support us. We now also have merchandise. We have an awesome t-shirt. Come back in two weeks for our next episode on apes and monkeys. Apes and monkeys.